If you have a Bible with you, could you please turn to the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament? We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, the focus of this message will be on verses 12 to 17 of chapter 1. I shall read a little bit more from verse 3 as a recap, as a reminder of what we've looked at in previous weeks. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, you can look at the screen uh, and follow there. And uh, what I'm going to do uh, at the end of preaching is just pick up that prophetic thread from the, uh, the meeting thus far and ask, is there anything squashing your first love? And if you conclude that there is, I'm going to invite you to respond. And I don't know precisely how we'll do that yet, um, but kind of stay tuned. That's what's, uh, that's what's coming. Uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'll read from verse 3. And like I say, we'll actually focus on verse 12 onwards uh, from this passage. Here we go. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though... I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. So... Right in the middle, right in the heart, right in the centre of those verses, there's something that Paul mentions that changes everything, something that completely changed his own life, something that actually changes the whole tone and feel of the chapter we've just read. And it's this, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Before verse 11... This chapter is a bit of an uphill struggle. Uh, It makes for grim reading. After verse 11, 
it's wonderful. The, the tone and the feel of the chapter changes completely. Why? Because Paul lives his life in the light of the gospel. Before verse 11, there are those who are not living in their life in the light of the gospel, or perhaps they're discouraged and, like Timothy, life is a bit of an uphill challenge. And that's what we've, we've read. We've, the context is that Timothy is discouraged. He wants to serve God. He wants to honor God. He's laying down his life for the gospel, but he's discouraged. That's why Paul has to say, as I urged you, stay in Ephesus. Why? Well, because Timothy would rather be somewhere else. And Timothy would rather be doing something else. And he was facing what seemed like, and to all intents and purposes, was a huge challenge that made life seem a bit uphill. So if you've got, in conventional terms, war as it happened, battles as they happened years ago, you get two armies, you put them in a field, and one on one side, one on the other, and at some point they're going to decide to meet in the middle somewhere and have a fight. The army that has the higher position that is uphill obviously has the advantage. They have the upper hand. For them, it's, it's easier to make progress and meet the other army coming the other way. And the other army coming the other way have to spend much more effort and energy just to reach the battle line. Before they've done anything, it's just hard work. The other, t- the other army, they're just careering down. Um, and, and for Timothy, it was almost that there is this feel of it, it's uphill. If you like, he's playing away from home. So it's all the more impressive when a team wins, uh, when they're playing away from home. If you're interested in the British and Irish Lions, they achieved that yesterday. That's a major accomplishment. It doesn't happen every four years. It doesn't happen every eight years. It's, it's massive. They beat the best team in the world in, on their patch. Anyway, move on. We're talking about the gospel. It's more glorious so Timothy's playing away from home he's not from Ephesus they've briefly visited Ephesus and Paul said now you need to stay put because you need to command certain men not to teach false doctrine but certain men are from Ephesus they're at home they're in their patch this is their territory this is their position and now Timothy's got this massive task on his hands to confront them to correct them and to, and to lead the church. And sometimes for us, or perhaps not in quite the same ways, we face personal challenges in front of us where it would seem that the enemy or the opposition holds the higher ground. We feel overwhelmed. We feel discouraged. Effort is needed just to hold our own ground, let alone advance and make progress. Perhaps in spiritual life, things seem to be uphill. Praying is a bit uphill. It's just an effort. The focus is on our effort and we feel worn down. So we could believe that God will do wonderful things. But first, we need to exert superhuman effort to overcome some issues, to overcome some Obstacles, and maybe then, maybe one day, maybe when we've reached the summit, 
Maybe then God will do something amazing, but until that point, we're feeling it's an uphill battle. That's the case for Timothy. It's also the case for the church. The church is confused. They're unclear. They have been fed a weird and bizarre diet of myths and genealogies, endless waffle, uh, that doesn't lead to faith. And because it's not clearly pointing to the word of God in a way that helps, it just brings about controversy. It's like cloudy. Things are just unclear. What do I believe? I'm not sure because I'm, I'm hearing things that are puzzling. Maybe there is a hint of gospel, but there's a lot of other stuff. Faith is being squashed. Our sense of first love is being squashed by meaningless talk and the misunderstandings of the leaders who are just emphasizing law, law, law. Oh, hard work, uphill. So let's worship. But worship is uphill. It's a bit of a struggle. Prayer, well, that would be great, but maybe let's just forget it for now. Maybe one day. Mission, witnessing, evangelism, well, forget it. It's just too much effort just to hold our ground and do the ordinary stuff. Maybe one day, maybe we'll reach that summit. Maybe the, the, the kind of general atmosphere will, will change. But right now, we're just not in that place. Why? Timothy's discouraged, the church is confused. Like I say, the whole chapter hinges. That's why it feels so uphill until Paul mentions the glorious gospel. That's where it changes completely because Paul is stood at the summit. Not by his own impressive efforts, as we'll see. Therefore, he has a very different perspective. He sees things differently. He still sees the challenges and the discouragements, the realities of of life and and church and believing in Ephesus, but he sees it something that's more glorious that puts it all into perspective. So from where he is standing, he sees the glorious gospel of the blessed God, and he is living in the light of it. So his ministry and his whole life, it's a stark contrast to those who'd swerved away and were teaching rubbish because he's not got bogged down. He's, he's seeing. And he, what he's preaching and what he's teaching and what he's writing is all about what he himself has experienced. And it's genuinely changed his life. And there's still that sense for him of just, Wow. Yeah, I can see that there are a few things that we need to deal with. But overall, when I stand back and see the whole vista, everywhere I look, I see, wow, isn't God awesome? Isn't God the blessed one? Isn't this gospel glorious? And that's what's flowing out from him and changes the, uh, the, the, he, changes the whole field dramatically. We see that in four ways. Because, first of all, the gospel, if like it has these different hallmarks, the gospel has made him into a man who is, number one, humble. Under the teachers of the law, perhaps the general diet of teaching they received was along these lines, 
You have to be the hero of your own story. So for you to ascend the hill and become the hero, I'm going to turn back and find some really odd references in some genealogies in the Old Testament to uh, heroes of the Old Testament. And let's look at their story. They were the hero. Now you have to be the hero. You can be the hero if you copy them. And so the uphill journey continues. And we're, we're tired out because we can't be the hero. And we do fail. We do trip over. Our efforts and our energies are limited. But for Paul, it's completely different. He's not trying to be the hero. His focus is completely Jesus. This is all about Christ. This is not all about me. It's not all about these other heroes in the scripture. It's not all about the elders of the church. It's all about Jesus. And so you see, as he goes through, we'll take a whistle-stop tour of those verses that we just read. Just tune in to how many times he's talking about Jesus. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's given me strength. In verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, For that reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience, and so on. And he arrives at the end. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory, and so on. So can you see, even as he talks about his own story and his own experience of the gospel, he's totally, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is wonderful. And what does that do? Well, Paul was once, before he met Jesus, a really proud man. According to the law, he was very impressed with himself. All that he'd accomplished, all that he'd done, everything that he'd ticked off, according to the law, faultless. The Hebrew of Hebrews. But he meets Jesus He receives the gospel and it changes him completely. He's no longer attempting to be the hero. He's no longer attempting to impress himself. He's no longer attempting to impress other people. Why? His focus is all Jesus. What's the result? He can be quite open. He can acknowledge his past. He could pray out, when I think back now to where I was, when I think back now, to the person I was, to to the situation I was in and my hopelessness. He's not kind of putting the spotlight there. He's putting the spotlight on Jesus, but he's humble. There's no pretense. He's not trying to hide who he once was. He can say, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. I was just in ignorance and unbelief before I met Jesus. He wasn't somebody who was thinking of himself too highly. He wasn't pretending that grace was something just that other people need. Because you've got to understand, you can, only, you can only be here and do this if you've kind of reached a certain level. And there's a telltale sign that a church has drifted away from the gospel. Is it kind of just thinking in terms of levels all the time. Oh, they're above me. That person's below me. I've come on. I'm further on than they are. 
But they, oh, I couldn't possibly be in their hallowed company. I, I couldn't possibly. Um, uh, we were chatting uh, uh, with some new folk who were wanting to find out more about the church, and there was one guy who was just saying, just going a bit over the top in his kind of flattery of us as leaders and preaching and uh, just how great an impact it had on him and what holy people was, we must be and how it was giving this impression that we were like above thought hang on a minute other people are hearing you talk we've got to put the record straight standing here and doing this is no measure of my holiness or anybody else's for that matter it's no indication of my character it, it gives no flavor of what i'm like at home um, preaching doesn't make me holy i think that hang on a minute And I think Paul is saying the same. I'm exhibit A. When it comes to somebody needing the gospel, I'm exhibit A. It's me. We're not doing levels here. Oh, no, you're my professor, you're my professor. No, you can call us brother or you can call me Dan. You can't call me anything else. It's just not on. Why? Because the gospel's at stake. If we allow that mindset to develop, it's, it's, it's just weird. And what does it do? It squashes our first love, and we stop living in light of the gospel. Better move on. So it makes us humble. No one's to think they're above or below somebody else. We're just impressed with Jesus. And that's, that's what's to get into us. And that's an indication as a church. We really are enjoying the gospel and the grace of God. So Paul is humble. Paul is also also grateful. He's really thankful. Under the teachers of the law, perhaps there was this subtle tendency to encourage the church to consider what we have achieved. Now that just leads in two directions. It leads to pride if we think we've done really well. It leads to despair and self-pity if we think we haven't. Neither leads to faith. Neither encourages to keep hold of our first love. It's just grim. So Paul, having received the gospel and living his life in the light of it, it's just out from him just flows and oozes this gratitude to God. For him, the focus isn't what I've achieved. His focus is just blatantly front and center on what I have received What has come my way? Are you ready for another whistle-stop tour of these verses to demonstrate the point? Not only is it all Jesus, it's also all what he has sent in my direction. This is all about what we have received from him. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength. The only reason I'm here and can do any of this is I'm totally dependent on him. But he keeps strengthening me. He keeps enabling me. When I come to the end of myself, I find that there is a good, blessed God who keeps giving, who keeps enabling. Um, And then in verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Oh, along with the faith and love that are in Christ 
Jesus. It goes on in verse 16 that for this very reason I was shown mercy. He can't help but talk about it again. So that in him Christ might display in verse 16 his unlimited patience. As an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Can you see what excites Paul? It's mercy, it's grace, it's mercy again, it's strength, it's perfect and unlimited patience all the way through my entire relationship with him, and it's eternal life. Get that, receive that, and it blows the doors off all this grim stuff. It it changes that dynamic of spiritual life, of uphill, my effort, struggle, into what a God. He's here. He's available in the highs and in the lows, on the battlefields and winning the victories. Look at Jesus. And now we're on the summit and we can look around and along with Paul start to go, wow. Takes my breath away. No longer in the huff and the puff of trying to get up the hill, but just would you look at him? Would you look at God? It changes just the very kind of culture and the feel, the atmosphere and the character of our spiritual lives. No longer is prayer this upward plod. Now, of course, there's discipline involved. Of course, it's not always this easy delight. But nevertheless, I'm no longer trying to impress anybody with my prayer life. I'm no longer trying to impress God. I'm no longer trying to impress myself. Actually, that just frees me up to pray because I've received grace. I've received mercy. So humble, Paul is humble. His focus is on Jesus. He is grateful. He's, hum- he's, he's focused on what he's received. It has another effect. He's outward looking. For the believer or for the church that is just on an uphill treadmill, there's no effort to think evangelistically and perhaps faith for it is squashed and there's that tendency just to turn inwards let's just get the church sorted let's just talk to ourselves let's just try and find desperately some little kernel of encouragement that would maybe somehow help us maybe yep But on that diet of you be the hero, you be the hero of your own story, nothing can thrive anyway, so we're just going down the pan together. And that's what church life can be if we lose sight of the gospel. That's what Timothy's service could become if he gets sucked into the same black hole the church is struggling in. It's like, well, maybe one day, maybe one day when we've made this effort and we've, we've managed to get there, we can believe for evangelistic growth. Maybe one day when I source out all my baggage, I could share my faith. Newsflash, you'll always have a little bit of baggage. Just share your faith. <laughs> and believe. It's the gospel that's powerful. I don't have to impress anybody. The gospel is impressive. So I'm just going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to share him. And look, that's Paul's 
focus. He says, here's a trustworthy saying in verse 15 that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's what he did with me, Paul is saying. If you like, I was the most unlikely candidate to receive grace because I was busy persecuting the church. I was, very, I was the unlikely guy. There were very few people thinking, I know, I think God's going to save Paul. What? That guy who's trying to kill us? Yeah, I think God's at work in his heart. I don't think anyone was saying that. They were just thinking, people are coming to faith. Maybe it will never be him. And uh, Richard and I had the privilege of meeting someone this week, a uh, guy called Scott. Scott is Australian. He is 34. And he's been in this country uh, as a resident for two weeks in Liverpool because he and his wife have come to plant a church. I think, great. He wanted to meet up with us because he said, when I was 20-ish, back in 2004 and 2005, I lived in Sheffield and I was drifting. And I'd never heard about much about Jesus. I wasn't from any kind of church background whatsoever. I had no great plan for my life. I was... Uh, doing what guys do, um, if they don't know Jesus, around that kind of age, and just happened to be working in a, a shop somewhere in Sheffield, and somebody who was a member of this church, as it happens, bounds into that shop, asked for a particular magazine, and he got it in stock. And what struck him was, she never stopped talking about Jesus. Somehow they had ongoing conversations. They, she, maybe she was often passing through his particular store, and. She didn't stop talking about Jesus. She didn't stop talking about the kids' club that she was involved with. And they became friends. And every now and again, she would challenge him on his lifestyle, as friends do. And, uh, and every now and again, he came along to meetings that were here, upstairs in this building in 0405. And uh, he, if you were around at that time, and uh, he would have been the really gloomy-looking, disinterested guy in the back corner on one of the wooden pews that we then had. And uh, he, he would have looked like the unlikely guy. I can't... Will, God, will God's grace get him? He doesn't look all that interested or whatever. He was coming along because it helped him feel better on a few occasions. And then what happened is, uh, suddenly he decided he wanted to go back to Australia. Two weeks later... Some Anglican vicar was leading him through a prayer of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. And in all the intervening time, he's just a man on fire for God. So, so he said, I want you to know, I'm coming, I've come back now actually to Liverpool. I just want you to know that whilst the prayer was prayed there, the work happened here. And I thank God for what he did by being amongst you guys. So, would you mind if I let the church know that? That would be my pleasure. So there's a guy called Scott planting a church in Liverpool, having looked really disgruntled and disinterested in a couple of meetings upstairs. Why? Because the gospel is powerful. Unlikely candidate. And that's what we can do. If faith gets squashed and if love gets squashed, we start to categorize people. And if they smile, we think God might be able to work in their life. And if they look gloomy and a bit angry or something else, we think, well... There's no hope for them. Well, there wasn't much hope for Paul. There was much hope for Scott. But God's gospel is powerful. And he's got a habit of changing people's lives with it. When we live in the light of that, it becomes a bit easier 
to talk about Jesus, because it's not all down to me being super persuasive. It's just, I know it's true. I know he's good. I believe it works. Because we're focused on the gospel. So, so for Paul, there's this, there's this focus on mission. He actually cares about sinners. He actually cares for people who are far away. He cares about religious rebels and he cares for irreligious rebels. We can't accuse Paul of being insular and introspective. His story invites us to consider that in saving sinners, God often works in the most unlikely of people. But sometimes we face the temptation almost of being too harsh towards unbelievers, unbelieving ourselves about what God can do in their lives. We've got loads of grace for one another and all our failures, but not much grace for the unbelievers who are ignorant and in unbelief, maybe persecuting or blaspheming or violent. (gasps) There's danger out there. No, the danger is the church loses the gospel. Our biggest danger, as I've said before, is that we lose sight of how good the gospel is. Actually, God's got a lot of grace for people who don't know him yet. Uh, Let's be involved in discovering that more and more for ourselves as a church. Fourthly, in addition to being humble, grateful, outward-looking, Paul is awestruck. For him, the focus, as well as being on Christ, on all that we've received, on his grace, and on the power of the gospel to save sinners, his focus is worship, or rather, his focus is the sheer magnificent greatness of God. So as he breaks into verse 12, as soon as he considers this glorious gospel, what does he say? I thank God. Just overflowing with gratitude. He can still see issues. He can still, he's, he's not unreal. He's not pretending otherwise. He's not sweeping under the carpet conveniently some of the challenges the church are facing and the discouragement that Timothy faces and some of the challenges of his own position. He's just not dominated by them. And therefore, he just flows in worship. He's not making the decision. Now would be the appropriate time to sing a song. It's it's not kind of rigid. It's not regimented. He's writing a letter to Timothy. And there's no waffle in it. He's not losing his thread. But when he gets to a certain point, he can't but help stop talking to Timothy for a moment, stop writing to him, and instead write to God. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. His letter becomes a prayer. His letter becomes worship. It is just bubbling up in him. If life is this spiritual uphill battle of my effort, my effort, my effort, maybe one day God will then worship just gets squashed in addition to these other things. He starts with thanks, he concludes with worship. He cannot contain his worship and he doesn't want to contain his worship. He's going to allow it to bubble up in thanks and praise to God. And when we live in the light of the gospel, we too, we're just not trying to impress ourselves. We, we do grow in humility because we're fixed on him. We're no longer trying to analyze what level I'm on. 
all the time. Fixed on him, fixed on what we have received, are receiving, will receive. Aware that that overflows to a world that doesn't yet know him and it fuels our worship. Therefore, if you are, like Timothy, slightly discouraged by the real responsibilities and the challenges that you face in front of you, you can start to tell, well, maybe my first love then has got squashed. If I can recognize that one of these ingredients, if you like, is a bit missing. If I'm very concerned with, with where I fit on the spiritual pecking order, or if I'm very focused on what I need to achieve rather than what I've received, if faith has got squashed to ever dare mention the name of Jesus to somebody who doesn't know him, or if worship, either corporately or personally, is just always heavy going, maybe you need to come to verse 11. Say, Lord God, would you help me? Would you open my eyes again so that along with Paul, I might say, wow, hang on a minute. There is all this stuff going on. Let's just put that to the side for the moment because there's a glorious gospel and there's an amazing God. And now we're starting to see more clearly. Now the clouds are starting to dissipate. Now we're, we're getting perspective again because we've come back to that as our center. That's, that's got to be the center so I'll return to that question that was posed at the outset. Is there anything squashing your first love? By virtue of discouragement like Timothy, or like for the church, this confusion? Come back to this center ground. Come back to this glorious gospel of the blessed God. Allow him to, to fill your vision again. Look, Paul is writing to Timothy and his express wish is that this might have the effect of just encouraging him. Grace, mercy, and peace. That's what I'm wanting for you, Timothy. In verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace. I pray that this letter might have the effect of grace, mercy, and peace being poured out on you. So as soon as he starts to talk in verse 12, what's he talking about? Grace, peace, the effects of being at peace with God and, and mercy and the incredible patience of God and his, the strength that he gives and the love and the faith that overflow in Christ Jesus. Are you getting it? Are you seeing why this letter is important? Are you seeing why it's encouraging? Are you seeing why it's important for a whole church community to get hold of. It's not just, let's just sort out the church, let's deal with internal matters. It's so important. Because then, what, what's flowing out from a people enjoying God together? You have a duty to delight in God. You have a duty to keep yourself in the love of God. Let me put it another way. It's your number one priority. Be happy in God. Come 
to the gospel so that together we might all just take some time to go, wow, just wow. I'm going to trust you for all the rubbish, Lord God, and all the issues and the baggage, but wow, this is bigger than that. This puts all that in perspective. Now, if you would like to respond before we worship, I'm just going to invite you to stand. If you think something has squashed my first love, something has squashed my focus on Jesus, something has squashed. Now, I'm saying, you want to receive encouragement today. You want this truth that we've been looking at to come alive in your heart. Why don't you stand now?